Thanks, Chris. Thank you, buddy. Morning. Uh, you have an index card on your chair. Hopefully um, you do. You may be sitting on it. If you would reach uh, and grab that, that would be incredible. As well, if you can get something to write with, that would be awesome. Um, and if you don't have a pen, you can use lipstick. Or if you're really committed, you can prick your finger and write in blood. That'd be awesome as well. Um, but here's what I would love for you to do on this index card. We're going to give you right at 30 seconds to do this. I want you to write down in no particular order the five most important people, places, or things in your life. The five most important people, places, or things. If you want to put family as family, you can do that. If you want to list them out, you can do that as well. Five most important people, places, or things. We're going to play some thinking music for you to do that. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so hopefully you're done. Obviously, since they're priorities, hopefully you didn't have to think about that. If you had to think about that, that's a whole nother talk. We're not going to go there, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the five things that you wrote down, five people, places, things that you wrote down, and let's pretend you have to eliminate the least important of the five that you wrote down. So eliminate the least important of the five that you wrote down. If, every, if someone listed all your family members... Parents, you've always told your children you don't have a favorite. This just proves you do, okay? So eliminate the least important of the five. Now you have four. Of the four you have left, eliminate the least important of those four. <laughs> the collective groan, it's, it, it's painful. And some of you know where I'm going. Now you have three. Of the three you have left, eliminate the, the least important of those three. And now, if there was a drum roll, this is where it would start. Now you have two. Of those two that you have left, eliminate the least important of those two. And I want to say this to every husband and father that is sitting beside your wife. And she has you and children left. Bro, you are a goner, okay? She is eliminating you. You are out like sauerkraut, okay? You're done. Now, I want you to look at the one thing that you have left on your list. Here's the question we all have to wrestle with. Does it matter? Does the one thing that you have left on your list matter? And I know there's a man going, dude, you rushed me. I put my truck. I, okay, but, but does that thing matter? And here's why I think that's an important question. Because whatever it is that is left on your piece of paper, it is my contention that that's what you have literally wrapped your entire life around. Your life is revolving around the thing that matters most to you. And here's why that's interesting this morning, and here we go and where we go this morning. Uh, Scott may have mentioned this, but I get the opportunity, privilege, and huge responsibility to speak to a ton of teenagers, moms and dads, coaches, teachers, leaders every single year. Last year, I stood in front of about 25,000 teenagers during the course of that summer, and we did the exercise with teenagers that you just did. Instead of one piece of paper, we gave them five index cards, and at the end of the exercise, we took up the one card that they said is the most important thing. Now, where are the moms and dads in the room? You are a parent, okay? How many of you, you're parents of toddlers, parents of elementary age, parents of teenagers? Pray for these people. Uh, how many of you, you your, your children are a little bit older? You're the parent of older kids. How many of you, you're a grandparent this morning? Awesome. How many of your aunties and uncles? How many of you, you're a child of a parent? <laughs> 
I just saw a man go, am I one of those? Yes, you're one of those. (laughs) Now, here's what's interesting about the question that we asked 25,000 teenagers, and we took up their cards, and especially almost all of us in this room in some way, shape, or form have an expressed intentional interest in the next generation. This was about 98% of the cards that we got back. The number one answer, the thing that's most important to them, to which those of you that are parents of teenagers, you're like, well, my kid didn't go to that camp. Because you're thinking, there's no way that my child thinks that our family is most important. And here's why I think that's something for us to wrestle with this morning. Because a lot of us in this room, for those of you that aren't parents of the next generation, here's what I would tell you as a fellow parent of the next generation. There are times, ladies and gentlemen, where parenting the next generation and hopefully and prayerfully seeing them pursue Jesus passionately feels like it's impossible. We are living in a culture that makes it feel like a kid who is passionate about Jesus is an oxymoron. But here's what I would propose to all of us this morning. Whenever whenever we decide to stop doing anything that seems impossible, we settle for a version of life that God never intended us to live. When you and I stop doing things that we think are impossible or we're convinced are impossible, you and I will settle for a version of life that God never intended us to live. And so here's what I'd like to press at today. I would like for us to look at an Old Testament story. If you don't do the whole Jesus God much, the Bible is split into um, two portions, the Old Covenant or Old Testament, the New Covenant or the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there is this story um, about one of the greatest leaders in the Old Testament. Most biblical historians and theologians believe that Nehemiah was one of the greatest leaders of his time. Some of you have heard uh, about Nehemiah. I'm not going to spend a ton of time in detail about Nehemiah, but there's two things that Nehemiah did that all of us who care about the next generation, and I'm going to say all of us in this room should, whether you're a parent, grandparent, auntie, uncle, or a Jesus person, you should care about the next generation. Nehemiah gives us two clues as to what we need to do in such a tumultuous time in our culture. Um, For those of you that don't know the backstory of Nehemiah, in 587 BC, um, the city of Jerusalem um, was laid siege upon by Nehemiah and his Babylonian military. They laid siege on it for such a long time that eventually they ransacked the city, they uh, took captive, took slaves, 10 tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they left Jerusalem desolate, burned out, and broken. Burned down the gates, broke down a ton of the walls. Um, and this is history. This is not Bible legend. It's history. And literally, the city of Jerusalem, if you want to know how important the city of Jerusalem is to Jews and the Hebrew nation, the city of Jerusalem to Jews is what Washington, D.C. is to Americans. It is their crown jewel of their faith. And it is burned out, left desolate, and it stayed like that for 142 years. Jerusalem laid barren, desolate, burned out. About 10 years after 587 BC, around 577, 576, 575, Hebrews started seeping back into the city so that a decade or two later, you had parents raising their children in the burned-out ruins of Jerusalem. And here's what I would love for us to consider. Think about you raising your children in what was once the crown jewel of the Hebrew faith. 
And you know that eventually, after the third decade, the fourth decade, that they had lived in that condition for so long that they didn't realize how bad things actually were. And I would propose that what was happening to the Hebrews, the Jews in Jerusalem in 560 and 550 is no different than Americans today. We are living in such a crazy culture that we don't realize just how bad it is. And just like us, I think that Hebrews living in Jerusalem decades after Nebuchadnezzar did what he did, not only did they not realize how bad it was, but they thought there's no way this can change. Just like some of us in this room who walked in here this morning You're like me as the parent of three. My wife Kelly and I have three young adult children, our youngest being 19, our oldest being 24, and we are constantly going, this feels hopeless. This feels impossible. And here's what I want you to wrestle with, because if you know anything about the Jewish faith tradition, their legacy and their history and their past, in fact, your Old Testament, my Old Testament, our Old Testament in the scriptures is literally a narrative of their history. They take their history seriously. And I want you to think about moms and dads living in the burned out ruins of Jerusalem, telling their little children faith stories. Think about what it would have been like in 445 BC. And they're telling their children faith stories about what had happened in the past. And some dad or mom sits their kids around the fire and is like, let me tell you about this dude named Moses who looked a lot like Charlton Heston. And he took a stick and he shoved it down into the ground and a sea opened up and the whole army and he destroyed. And, and then there was this guy named Joshua that told everybody to march around a city and they blew trumpets and the walls fell down. And then there was this little dude named David who took a rock and killed a giant. And they're telling them all these stories. And don't you know, parents, that there was some smart aleck 12-year-old middle school boy that was growing up in Jerusalem that at some point went, whoa, 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 whoa. If that God is so powerful, then why are we living in ruins? Why doesn't he do something now to this? And heads up, ladies and gentlemen, if you were that parent, would you have had the the guts to look at that kid and say, well, the reason he doesn't do anything now (laughs) is because it's impossible and I, some of you, you just physically went, no, I would, ne- I would never dare say that. If you wouldn't have said it then, then why do you think it now? If you wouldn't have said it then, why do you think it now? And it's where we sit. We feel hopeless. We feel helpless. And Nehemiah does two things that are so brilliant. There's a very high probability, for those of you that are a little more scholarly, there's a very high probability that Nehemiah had never even been to Jerusalem. We know he wasn't born there. He had never been there. So he's never seen it. When we pick up on the book of Nehemiah in chapter 1, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes, who was Xerxes' son. If you saw 300, that Xerxes actually was a real person. He is, his son was Artaxerxes, and uh, Nehemiah is his cupbearer. If you want to know what a cupbearer is, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you've seen a cupbearer, because here's what a cupbearer did. A cupbearer's job was to taste wine that the king was about to drink, and if it was poisoned, that person would die, and the king would say, somebody's trying to kill me. So let's just say they were dispensable, Okay. 
Nehemiah was dispensable. He's the king to the, he's the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And when we pick up on this story in chapter one, he's writing a letter to Artaxerxes to tell him about what's going on in, in his crown jewel, the, the city of Jerusalem, the, the hub of his faith. And he does something that is so brilliant and so important for all of us to, to learn this morning. He names what is broken. He names what is broken. Here's how it plays out in, in chapter one. We'll throw this verse up on the screen. It says, those who survive the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned by fire. He writes that to Artaxerxes' boss and says, this is what's happening where I'm from. He names what is broken. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can't name the problem, you cannot correct or fix the problem. And as it relates to the next generation, your students, as Scott mentioned, 200 plus of them gathered south of here, trying to wrestle with what it means to be, a, because we're not spiritual, or we're not physical beings trying to figure out how to be more, more spiritual. We are deeply spiritual at the very core of who we are, trying to figure out how to be the best version of a human. And they're wrestling with that. So what do you and I, as the generation ahead of them, what does it mean for us to name what is broken? Because if we don't know what is broken, we can't fix or correct what is broken. So if I may, I would love to introduce you to Generation Z. If you are the parent of a child that was born between the years of 1995 and 2013, you are parenting Generation Z. If you're a grandparent of a child, you are the grandparent of a kid, Generation Z, born between those, those parameters. This is a great descriptor of who Generation Z is. They are considered by experts the loneliest generation that has ever existed in our country. Alcohol and drug abuse are trending down with this generation. Anxiety, depression, and the suicide rate is at an all-time high. Hospitals report that kids as young as nine years old are pouring into emergency rooms because they've tried to take their own life. They're that lonely. They're that hurt. They feel like nobody cares. And there are a ton of variables as to why they feel so lonely, and we could spend hours talking about that, but one of the reasons why, uh, one of the things that is contributing to their loneliness is they are the most Wi-Fi enabled generation that's ever existed in our country. By Wi-Fi enabled, this generation has never known or not known the internet. And if you don't understand how important Wi-Fi is to this generation, go to a restaurant that offers free Wi-Fi and teenagers gather there. And here's what you'll notice. You will never see their face. You will see the crown of their head because they will be constantly doing this. And here's what's happened as a result. They have developed a digital heartbeat, which means they live in a constant state of comparison and anxiety. And why do they have constant comparison and anxiety? Because they compare their behind the scenes story with everybody else's highlight film. Well, social media, right? Those of us that have some sort of social media platform, you never put like a picture of your hair all jacked up when you got out of bed. You're not like Aflac, you don't do that then. And they know who they really are. They can have thousands of followers and not one single soul know who they are. They are the, the most multiracial generation in the history of our country. 
Here's what I love about Generation Z. They see color and celebrate it. The issue with multiracial isn't Generation Z. It's Generation Z's parents. If you are Caucasian in this room, by the year 2045, you will be a minority in America. And the issue with multiracial with Generation Z isn't Generation Z. Generation Z sees color and celebrates it. The issue with Generation Z isn't Generation Z. It's their parents. It's their grandparents. It's those of you in this room right now that you've kind of tensed up because there's a very high probability that some parent in this room or a grandparent in this room, you will either have a child, a grandchild, or a great-grandchild that will be mixed. And you've got to wrestle with Will you love that kid the way they deserve to be loved? They're the most sexually fluid generation that's ever existed. We're going to talk about that more in just a second. But needless to say, the LGBTQ plus community and what that means to this generation, it's a big deal. They're the first post-Christian generation in the history of our country. By post-Christian, I mean this, that they do, this generation, I grew up during a time, and I didn't even grow up in church, but I grew up in a time when somebody said the Bible says, everybody would go, yes. You say the Bible says to this generation and they go, so? I think post-Christianity in our culture with this generation is the greatest gift the church has received. And here's the reason why. You and I have an opportunity to reframe, reframe our faith around the foundation and the core of what it should have stayed framed around in the first place. And that is, are you ready? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you're, some of you are like, so, right? If you're not impressed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, try it. (laughs) Die and try to come back to life. You come back to life, bro, I'll follow you, (laughs) right? (laughs) But the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the foundation of our faith. And we get an opportunity to reframe our faith around the thing that it should have been framed around from the beginning. They're the most self-directed generation that's ever existed. The reason why they're self-directed is because they are underprotected. The reason why they're underprotected is that their parents, my generation of parents, their parents were parented by helicopter parents. And what we did was reacted to how we were parented and we decided to go carry Underwood and Jesus take the wheel. We're just going to let you do whatever you want to do. Not all of us, but some of us. Not only are we underprotective as parents of Generation Z, but we are the first generation of parents in America that have not looked forward to getting old. My parents could not wait to have grandkids sit in a rocking chair and die. It was like their goal. (laughs) My generation parents, we're doing everything we can to not grow old, thus this haircut and this outfit. All right, so... Think about how much time so many of us in this room spend at Lifetime Fitness, those of us that are parents, you spend at Lifetime Fitness, you're out on the weekends, you post as many pictures, if not more, of your friends at concerts with red Solo cups. (laughs) Why? Plastic surgery, all that kind of, and none of that is at its core bad, but it sent a signal (laughs) to our children you raise yourself. And consequently, their childhood has disappeared. It doesn't mean they are developing faster. It just means they're exposed to more sooner. And what some of us experienced when we were seniors in high school, it now is experienced when they're in third and fourth grade. And if we get really honest, 
This is the most sex-saturated generation that's ever existed in our country. The average age of an adolescent, that the average age an adolescent experiences pornography the first time in our country is 11 years old. Can we just agree? Our children are broken. And sir, ma'am, before I'm going to ask you to resist the urge to get up and leave. Because there are some of us in this room, your knee-jerk reaction is, well, you're exactly right, they're broken, and they are the issue in our country. Culture moves in 20-year clips. What this generation is experiencing as a generation is the result of 20 years ago. Moms and dads, grandparents, when you were younger. Nehemiah goes, the walls are broken down. This is an issue. And you could choose right now as I'm talking about this to ignore everything that I'm talking about and say, um, you're over-glamorizing it, you're over-exaggerating, this isn't for me. But here's what I would propose. Anytime you and I decide to ignore the issues in our community, we forfeit the right to have influence in our community. You decide to ignore what I'm talking about, and you are deciding not only as a person, as a parent, as a family, heads up as the Capital C Church and the Bridge Church, and as Jesus people to have influence in our community. And you and I do not have influence because we're right. Because some of us, our immediate thing is, well, I'm right, I know what's wrong, and that's, you do not have influence because you're right. You have influence because you care. You have influence because you care. And some of you, (laughs) you're like me, the first thing you want to do is you're like, well, we just need to pray. And I would tell you, is it, (laughs) it is okay for you to pray for a miracle. It is okay for you to expect a miracle. It is not okay for you to wait on one. And a lot of us, what we do as parents, as aunties and uncles and grandparents and Jesus people, is we go, well, we just need to pray that God does something. We just need to pray that things will change. And that's okay. But what is it that you and I need to do? In the middle of Nehemiah saying all this to Artaxerxes, at the, the very last sentence of chapter one, check it out sometime, book of Nehemiah, there's this random sentence, and it's literally the last sentence of chapter one. And it says, I was cupbearer to the king. It's the most Forrest Gump ADHD comment in the scriptures. He's telling everything that's happening, and he goes, and I was compared to the king, and that's all I have to say about that. I mean, that's, it's just, why did you say that? Here's why I think he said it. First of all, I think for those of us that are older and appreciate this, I think he was having a Billy Joel moment. He was saying, I didn't start the fire, or, you know, I, it, this isn't on me. That's number one. And number two, he's going, you know what? As cupbearer to the king, I have some... I have some power, I have a position, I have some leverage, I have some influence, I have some leadership that I can lend to this. Watch this, moms and dads. There are 30-plus adults who are not the parents of your children south of here investing in the next generation. They literally at some point in their life went, I've got something that I can give. And isn't this true for all of us in this room? Aren't you glad someone that's not you is trying to invest in your kid? I am as a parent. 
And it's literally what he was saying. He was going, you know what? Whatever I can give, I can give. And I know the, the pushback on what I'm talking about is some of you are going, well, they, the parents should take responsibility because they're the parent. You're not responsible for the next generation because you're a parent. Some of you, your pushback is, well, that's why we hire staff people. That's why we have Scott and all his cronies, okay? That, that's what they're for. You're, you're not responsible for the next generation because you're a parent, and you're not responsible for the next generation because you're a pastor. You're responsible. I'm responsible. We're responsible for the next generation because we claim to be Jesus people. And Jesus' people should care. Because if you and I don't, what happens? Nehemiah named what was broken, and the second thing that he did was so stinking brilliant. And it also lends to why what I'm talking about this morning is so difficult for those who aren't parents, especially of teenagers. Not only did he name what was broken, but he went to see for himself. That's the advantage that people that are investing in teenagers south of here for the last four or five days, that's the advantage they have because now they've gotten close to the next generation. And isn't this true? The closer you are, you are the, the, the more different your perspective. Proximity changes your perspective. The closer you get, the easier it is for you to see things. And what makes that difficult for me is it is incredibly difficult for me to paint a picture of what they are seeing there with the next generation. So I'm going to try to do that this morning, and it's going to be crowd participation time. We're going to get to it in just a second. But before I get there, here's what I want to ask you to consider. How many of you in this room, when you were a teenager, or even middle schooler or, you know, elementary age, fourth, fifth grade. How many of you in this room, when you were a teenager, you had an adult that wasn't your parent? It wasn't a parent. Maybe it was a coach, a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, small group leader. Maybe it was an, an auntie or an uncle or a grandparent. They weren't your parent, but you went to them with things that you couldn't talk to your parents about. Right? You don't have to raise your hand, but I appreciate you doing that. A ton of us in this room went to them. Some of us didn't have that, and you wish you would have. Now, for those of us that had someone like that, here's the question I want you to wrestle with. Why did you go to them? Why did you go to them and not some other adult? And isn't this true? The reason why you went to them and not some other adult is because to you, that person was safe. They were safe. Now, if you want to know why this church needs to be a safe place. And if you want to know <clears throat> why your home needs to be a safe place, consider this. I need seven volunteers. And here's what I would love. If you were born 1995 and after and you're in the room, is there anybody like that? Just raise your hand. Come on up here. I need seven of you. All you're going to have to do is stand, stand here and hold a sign. I need seven volunteers. Okay, there we go. There's three, four, five, yeah, y'all count because I can't, all right? So here's what I, I need you to do, okay? I need y'all to line up across here, okay? Line up across here. Do we have seven? We may have too many. Do we have too many? That's okay. Y'all just stay up here. Awesome, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you guys signs, and um, audience, you're going to have to help me in just a second. Here's what the signs are. Doubts about faith, Okay. Doubts about faith, and these are random, sexual identity, um, secrets about parents, okay, cheating on a test, 
you look like that. All right. Um, <laughs> sexual habit or secret, uh, abuse, and we'll give you self-harm. And you stay right there because I've got one special for you. High five. Cool. All right. Now watch. Here's what I want us to do. Let's pretend that this side of the stage is the thing that is the easiest for a kid to talk about. The easiest to come clean about, okay? You go and stand down there by her as well, okay? This is perfect, and y'all don't even realize how perfect it is. Okay, let's pretend that, okay? And then this side is the thing that's the most difficult to talk about. And here's what I mean by these things, okay? Cheating on a test. We all get that? Doubts about faith. Y'all get that? Self-harm. By self-harm, I'm talking about trying to hurt yourself, whether it's a suicide attempt or cutting. Secrets about your parents. <laughs> um, <laughs> sexual identity, the LGBTQ plus thing. We'll talk more. Abuse could be physical, could be sexual, could be emotional. Sexual habit or secret. Someone that is, as a young adolescent has become sexually active in some way, shape, or form. What I need you to do is to put them in order, the thing that's the easiest to talk about all the way to the things that's the most difficult. Which should be the first? Talk out loud. Come on. Cheating. Well, oh, wow. We're already here. Okay. Did y'all notice that nobody hesitated? Everyone went, cheating on the tests. Okay. Cool. Second one. Oh, <laughs> doubts about faith. Okay. Are y'all cool with that? Doubts about faith. Now it starts getting harder, right? What's third? Secrets are about parents. So you guys flip, okay? Now we're really getting difficult. The last four. Which is next? Sexual identity. Okay, so you move right here. Sexual habit or secrets here, right here. Are y'all cool with these two in that order or you want to flip it? Flip these two? These two? These two. Oh, it's, it's just an illustration. We'll leave it like that. Okay, here we go. Now watch, cheating on a test. Some of us in this room have had our own children tell us, I cheated on a test. And you high-fived your partner or your husband or spouse and went, they were, at least they were honest. <laughs> Some of you small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, you've had a kid talk to you about that and you're like, at least they're being honest with us. But some of us in this room, our kid has never told us this. And if I may, could that be a sign that there's too much legalism and not enough grace in your home? And here's why. By a showing of hands, how many of you in this room at some point in your life cheated on a test? Raise your hand high and look around. Ladies and gentlemen, the American education system. <laughs> We've all done it. But for some reason, watch this, our homes are places where kids don't feel safe enough to tell us. Doubts about faith. Isn't this one almost like this one? I mean, be honest. How many of you in this room, you still, like, I'm not 100% sure all the time. I shared this story in the first service. The guy that our daughter went to all four homecoming dances in high school with, four-star running back committed to your University of Texas. This past January, right before signing day, three or four days before signing day, some of you have read this story if you're a Texas Longhorn fan. 
on a Thursday morning about to go to school, long story short, blood clot goes through a hole in his heart that he didn't know he had, gets to his brain. And they weren't even sure that he would live, much less walk, talk, run again. My wife and I were actually in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport flying to Odessa when his mom called us frantically. And my first thought was, God, what are you doing? Not that kid. I doubt sometimes. Secrets about parents. And if I may, by the way, let me go back to this. Sometimes our children ask some really, really brave questions. If you want to keep your kids shut down and for them to feel like they're not safe spiritually in your home, when a kid asks a question that you've thought about before, you want to shut them down, patronize the question. Make them feel dumb for asking the question instead of applauding how courageous they are that they ask something that you're thinking about. I say that in love in Jesus' name. (laughs) Secret about parents. Can we just breathe easy, everybody in the room? Please, everybody take a deep breath. There is no such thing as a perfect parent. There is no such thing as a perfect family. There is no such thing as a perfect person. Look at the person sitting to your right and left right now. That person you, look at them. That person you are looking at is jacked up. (laughs) I just saw a wife go, you have no idea how true you are. And she was looking at her husband. Um, <laughs> He's the husband's like, I told my wife to embrace her, her mistakes, and she hugged me. You know, so. <laughs> Secrets about parents. See, we all have this idea that the family is like the stock. Have y'all met the stock family? You've met the stock family. It's that family picture that's in the, in the picture frames at Target, the stock photo family. And isn't this true? That family doesn't exist. And here's what happens to a kid, sorry, here's what happens to a kid who has issues going on at home with mom and dad, and they can't talk to you about it because you are it, and they can't come to church and talk about it, and when they get to church, because everybody has a jacked up family, nobody talks about it, and so they begin to reason, since nobody else is talking about it, I must be the problem. And guess what that kid grows up and does? Gets married. And then they have issues in their marriage. Because can we just agree, marriage would be incredible if it wasn't for the other person. And men, we're the other person. (laughs) And so they bolt. Because they couldn't talk about it. Sexual identity. This is the one that everybody in this room, it makes you tense up. For those of you that care, for those of you that care, 1.5% of Generation Z claims to be some sort of alternate lifestyle. 4.5% of them battle with same-sex attraction. And everybody in this room 
as soon as I brought this up, you immediately jumped to your view. And this is the only thing I'm going to ask you to consider. Ladies and gentlemen, on the other side of your view is a who. It's a kid. And if they can't feel safe here, and if they can't feel safe in your home, where do they go? I used this same illustration in Odessa, Texas. And after the third service, the pastor asked my wife and I to go and stand in the foyer. As soon as they dismissed, the doors burst open and the biggest oil man I have ever seen starts making a beeline right toward me. And I'm standing beside my wife and I did what any man in this room would do. I hid behind my wife and <laughs> just picking. His wife, is, his wife is walking real fast beside him and the closer he gets, I realize the man is bawling. And he could, all he could say to me is he shook my hand and he said, thank you, and he kept going. But his wife stopped and talked to us. Their daughter had come out to them. And this is what they were battling with. They were battling with the fact that all they wanted to do was to love their daughter. But they were being made to feel guilty by the church Because they wanted to love their daughter. And heads up too. 1.5%, 4.5%. This this generation will tell you that data is low. Sexual habit or secret. This is the most sex-saturated generation that's ever existed. And perhaps we need to change our language on how we're talking about sexuality. Because can we just, if you're going to live in a cesspool, you're going to probably get some stink on you. And we have presented this by way of purity for so long that maybe we need to start talking about sexual integrity. Because purity, by, by definition, technically means you do anything impure or think anything impure, you will always be impure. Sexual integrity allows us to build boundaries. Abuse. Every 11 minutes in America, um, Child Protective Services receives a substantiated report of a Generation Z kid being abused, whether sexually, emotionally, or physically. Every 11 minutes in our country. They can't talk, they can't talk about it here. And then this sweet girl... She's holding the self-harm sign. With self-harm, for those of you that care, 14.5% of this generation have tried to hurt themselves, to take their own life, and 17.5% of them have thought about it. And maybe we need to stop presenting that as a sin and start considering it some sort of mental health issue. And here's why I love these two little ones on the side. Thank you. Need another one? 
I'll just hold them like that. <laughs> you know why I love these two little ones on the side? Because there are things coming that we don't know what they are. And we will either be a church and homes that are safe or they're going to go somewhere else. Can y'all give them a giant round of applause? Y'all can just put the signs right there on the thing. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Thank you. You can go sit back down. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You do not determine how safe your home or your church is by how safe you want your church and home to be. You determine how safe your church and your home is by the story kids have been brave enough to share. And mom and dad, if they won't talk to you, some of that's natural. All the more reason why you need the church. But some of it's because they don't think this is a safe place. And can we just agree that the church should be the safest place in the universe for all of us? Doubt is not a dangerous thing to a kid. Unprocessed doubt is dangerous. Doubt is not a dangerous thing to a kid. It's unprocessed doubt that's dangerous. And I would also submit that the opposite, the opposite um, of, I'm, I'm going to screw this up, yeah. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. It's when we're so convinced that we know that's the opposite of faith. So how safe do you want to be? How safe do you want to be?